Heavenly Father, you'd help us to think clearly about this battle of Gog and Magog, that you'd keep confusion at bay. Help us to think well upon your text in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by thanking Dana for bringing us through Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Uh, Dana did bring us through the Millennial Kingdom. And so remember, the Millennial Kingdom is that a thousand-year reign of Christ where he's going to be reigning from Jerusalem. But now we're going to be dealing in verses 7 through 10, which has to do with this battle of Gog and Magog. And I'm sure all of you have been sitting on pins and needles wondering about the battle of Gog and Magog. Well, this is part of God's counsel. It's a battle that's alluded to in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and also here in Revelation chapter 20. Many scholars believe that they are different battles. I believe that they are synonymous, and I'll be laying that evidence out for you today. So if you've ever wondered about what is the battle of Gog and Magog, who are the participants, when does it happen, we're going to hopefully come to some definitive conclusions through the scriptures about that today. Now, a couple of big takeaways from this battle. Number one, we can learn from this battle of Gog and Magog that God's people... As soon as he returns for them in the rapture, his people are secure. And we're going to learn that again in the battle of Gog and Magog. The second thing that we're going to learn is that what creates sin is not environment for those who end up rebelling against God in this battle are living in a perfect environment. Messiah is reigning upon the earth. But what creates sin is the human heart. It's the human sin nature that creates the problem, not environment. So that's another takeaway that we can glean here from the battle of Gog and Magog. But let's get started right away. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 8. John said this, he said, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, dear ones, the first thing I want to point out here is in verse 7. Notice John says that when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. Now, notice the term completed there in the box. The term completed there comes from the verb toleo, which means that a time period has come to its limit. It's done. In fact, let me read to you. Lonida. Lonida is a Greek lexicon, so if you want definitions, oftentimes we will go to Greek lexicons to see what the definition of a term is. And I'm just reading this to you because it's so basic, but just to reinforce the idea, teleo means that something comes to an end of its duration. Okay, now, why am I laboring this point? Amillennialists don't believe that the thousand year exists. Okay, amillennial, they are without. If you're an atheist, you are without God. Amillennial is without the millennial kingdom. Well, here's the question. How can a non-existent time period be completed? How can something that does not exist come to completion? Okay, well, it shows the absurdity. Obviously, John has written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to make a point. And I think the obvious point is that there will be a completion to this a thousand years. Now, many amillennials will say, well, you don't understand, Eric. The thousand years are an indefinite time period. Well, okay, but John said there are a thousand years. Okay, and elsewhere we've seen that numbers are to be taken literally. Okay, so again, that shows us that, yes, this time period really is to be taken literal. Now, notice right after that it says, Satan will be released from his prison. 
So once this time period is released, remember Satan was bound according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. Now he's going to be released from his prison. All right. Now, one of the questions that often arises is, well, what is this prison? In fact, amillennialists and many postmillennialists will scoff at this idea that Satan was imprisoned in the first place because they will say, after all, Satan and the demons are angelic or spiritual beings. How can they be put in a prison? Well, here's one thing we have to keep in mind. When we're reading the book of Revelation and we read about what happens to spiritual beings, our goal is not to get into the metaphysics of it. In other words, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, our goal as the interpreter is not to try to understand how God metaphysically did that, but to affirm that he did it. Okay, so I don't have to get into quarks and the elements of sound and the attack. That's beyond what the scripture is pointing to. Okay, so what this prison is like and how it's comprised metaphysically is not an issue for the interpreter. The issue for the interpreter is that there is indeed a place in the spiritual realm in which these demonic beings, including Satan, will indeed be bound. That's what we have to affirm. Now, let me have you turn your Bibles to Jude chapters, uh, well, there's only one chapter, Jude verses 6 through 7. Please turn your Bibles there. Remember, that's the book just before Revelation. And what I want to do is show you elsewhere in the New Testament where this prison in which Satan was bound before the thousand years and is now going to be released, where else is this prison referred to? Well, it's referred to in Jude 6 through 7, 1 Peter 3, and also in 2 Peter. We'll show that passage as well. So let's look at Jude, verses 6 through 7. Hope you've all turned there. Now, Jude, remember, is comparing the sin of false teachers to the angels who left their proper abode of authority. Jude 6 through 7, he says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Okay, now stop there for just a moment. Notice the phrase, he has kept in eternal bonds. Now again, metaphysically, we don't know what a bond would look like upon a spiritual being. So the metaphysics is out of, I don't think that that's something we have to answer or wrestle with. What we have to affirm is that these angelic beings are in fact bound. They're in bonds. Now, notice why. Verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, Germans, notice here in verse 7, what did the angels do, just like they did in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, notice it says they engaged in gross immorality. The term that's used there is ek porneo, and you can hear the root for pornography, but it's gross immorality. And so just as those in Sodom and Gomorrah engaged in sexual perversion, so did the angels. And that's when they left their proper abode or authority and they went after women. And that created the Nephilim, etc. Okay, so that's why they're being linked to that. Okay, so here we see clearly that those angels that left their proper abode and went after women, according to Genesis 6, they were put in eternal bonds. Okay, yeah, Bob. Uh, on the idea of a time period? Yeah. I'm, maybe some others can be thinking about this, but 
aren't there cases where in the past there were predictions of definite time periods, like the 400 years yeah. in Egypt? Right. Uh, I remember Dana was talking about that in regard to whether it was 400 or 430, 430 but it was yeah. definite. Right. And I think there's some other cases maybe somebody can think of. Yeah, Daniel's 70 Weeks Prophecy, yeah. It's well, yeah, I'm thinking about things that already happened. Yeah, right, right. It turned out to be definite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so seventy years go. of yeah. exile. There we go. Yeah. So that, good reading. So there, here's something I hadn't heard discussed, but I'm sure it has been. Yeah. In the past, when there's a definite time period, it turned out to really be definite. Exactly. And it happened that way, but there were also indefinite periods, like at the end of Malachi, it talks about the coming of Elijah before yeah. the great and terrible. But it doesn't say how long that will be. Right. So the period from the end of Malachi until the birth of Messiah was indefinite right. at the time they only had the Old Testament. Right. Um, so if you go by that, let's think about the period between the ascension of Christ in the rapture of the church. Yeah, indefinite. Isn't that indefinite? Right, right. We There's don't no time assigned to it. Yeah. So I would say based on what happened in the past, yeah. when something's indefinite, it's said that way or it's just allowed to go on. Well said. And when it is definite, it's stated that way. Like here. So what evidence do the millennials have that all of a sudden... The, the definite time period doesn't matter anymore. Well said. That's really bad hermeneutics, it in is. my opinion. Absolutely. They're not trying very hard. <laughs> right. Well said, Bob. So very I would good. say anything future, like Daniel's 70th week or the thousand year, take we should take as definite. We have no reason not to. Absolutely. That's right. Like the 400 years in Egypt or whatever. Yeah. And back to the 70 weeks prophecy, you know, in Daniel 9, when you do the math on Jesus Christ's first coming, it does really equal the 483 years. It really well, then it up. was definite. Yeah, it was definite in that sense. So, From Daniel's perspective. Right. Good point. Yeah, but, but you're right, because what the amillennials, the postmillennials will do is they'll, oh. they'll focus on the last seven years. I like learning say, something when I come well, to church. <laughs> no, but you're right. It's a great point. So, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm supposed to know that. <laughs> no, Bob's pointing out, look, if there's no reason to take this as something that's indefinite, if the Bible gives a specific time period... That's how it's always been interpreted in the past. The 70 years that Barb alluded to, that was revealed in Jeremiah 25. And that's how Daniel knew that they were about ready to come out. And that's when he gives his godly prayer in Daniel 9. So absolutely, there's no reason to understand a thousand years as to be anything other than what it means. So well said. Yeah, Brian. It, it kind of gives the reader uh, a, a pause when reading because when it is definite, you go, well, wait a minute now. There's like added emphasis right. on that. God does that not just with dates, but through other things in the Bible that he numbers, like the fish. Yes. Okay, there's X amount of fish, indeterminate, and then there's 1,273 fish. Yeah, okay, well so said. He does that not just with dates, with lots of things. And, it, it, right. and it's, I think it's a message just to, to take notice. There's something special about that. Well said. Absolutely. Good, good point. And yeah, you know, I, 
Yeah, you know, I was thinking about how many fish was it that they caught? It was 153. Do you remember that? There was a specific number that was given, and you're right. I don't think we say, well, that must be figurative. No, I think we just say it was 153 fish. Somebody counted it, and for some reason, that was significant. So, amen. Well said. Now, in Jude 6 through 7, then, you see that this prison is real. Notice Jude is talking about a prison that happened for these angelic beings that went after women, that they left their proper abode. They really were put in bonds. Now, let me have you turn your Bibles to another passage that alludes to this prison, and that's 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. Now, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19 is one of the most often abused passages by false teachers in the entire New Testament because it's dealing with a category that oftentimes Christians are kind of, uh, what would you say, ignorant of. And that has to do with this, these spirits that actually sinned through their rebellion against God by going after strange flesh, leaving their proper abode. And that's what we see here in 1 Peter three eighteen through 19. Now notice the gospel here is present. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. Notice hapax, once and never again the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, let me just stop there in verse 18. Let's hone in on this. I hope everyone's turned to this. We're at 1 Peter 3.18. One of the big dividing lines in theology is how do we understand that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit? Some versions will say he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so the idea would be that, yes, certainly Jesus in his sphere of flesh was put to death, but he was made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is we're taking two datives, dative prepositions, and we're rendering them two different ways in one sentence. Now, I like how the NASB renders it here. I think Peter is saying something significant, when he says that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If we take them both, notice the in, that's a date of preposition. It often has to do with a sphere. So if you're in my house, you're with me. If I'm in your house, I'm with you. So in the flesh would mean in the sphere of Jesus' earthly existence. That is, he was truly God, truly man. He was really a man who could die. He really got tired. It was in that realm that he was put to death. But what would it mean that he was made alive in the spirit? Certainly Peter's not saying that Jesus wasn't physically raised, but he just had this ethereal, spiritual, ghost-like being. For Jesus himself says, remember, a ghost does not have flesh and bone as I have. Okay, so Jesus and Peter are not going to be saying two different things. I think the key to understanding this is to understand that the New Testament writers understood that in the flesh was the old way of existence, but being alive in the spirit was a higher order. Just as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul contrasts the natural body with the spiritual body in the resurrection, meaning when you're raised from the dead and you have a spiritual life, it does not mean that you're just some you know, ghost-like figure sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. It's the idea that you have a higher existence. The flesh comes first and the spirit comes second in historical salvation. If we understand it that way, that the reference to being made alive in the spirit 
is a reference to Jesus' glorified body in which he could drink water if he wanted to. He could eat a cheeseburger if he wanted to. You could touch him, but yet he could transcend and go outside of the building. He could go to heaven. He can ascend. He can do things in his spiritual realm, in his spiritual glorified body that you and I cannot do in ours. Those are the two distinctives. So if I'm correct, it's within this latter sphere, his glorified body. Notice verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, if I'm right, now I don't have to say verse 19 is about him making proclamation by the power of the spirit, but he himself is doing it. In his glorified state, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. The idea would be that Jesus, after his resurrection, made a proclamation not of salvation, but of victory over these angelic beings that are being bound. They're in prison, just as Satan was in prison for a thousand years and then was released. Are you with me? But notice here, in verse 20 of 1 Peter 3, we see some information about what these spirits did. It says, "...who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So it mentions again us all the way back to Genesis where the angelic beings had engaged in their sin and rebellion. Yeah. I'm sorry, Tom. Or Paul. Well, yeah, the, what you just referenced, the in the flesh and in the spirit, those two datives, I think it's a great example of how a presupposition is made for you and why it is a good thing to go back to the Greek and other uh, translations as well. Uh, Absolutely. And, and here's our choice. We can say one is in and the other is by, and that's, that's, that's possible, but isn't it better to take them both as a dative of sphere? They're consistent within the same verse. And then we have to understand, well, what does it mean to be made alive in the spirit? Well, just as Paul talks about the spiritual body being greater than that of the flesh in 1 Corinthians 15, it's the resurrected, glorified sphere. That's how we have to understand it. And so it was in that sphere, in Jesus' glorified state, in which he made proclamation and victory to these angelic beings, those who had fallen. Okay, so again, you see this idea of a literal prison that these angelic beings were put in. Now, let's turn to the, the third one that I want you to see, a reference to the prison, and that's 2 Peter 2.4. Please turn your Bibles there. 2 Peter 2.4, one, one book ahead. Notice 2 Peter 2.4, Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, so many of your versions will say that, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now notice the term hell. Most of you either will have hell, or maybe you'll have Tartarus written in there, or you'll have some, some note in there that hell isn't really Gehenna from the Greek, it's Tartarus. Now, what in the world is Tartarus? Well, the term here is a participle form verb, a form of the verb, Tartareo, which means to be cast into Tartarus. So this isn't cast into hell. This is cast into a place called Tartarus. Now, in the Greek understanding, this is the place of the underworld. This is the place where the demons and the fallen angels were kept in bondage. So this would be synonymous with the prison that Peter had talked about in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
So that's what happens. So here, let's do our demonology, our angelology. God creates all things on heaven and earth. In heaven is the unseen realm. On earth is the seen realm. He creates the angelic beings to be his spokespeople, as it were, those who reign with him in the heavenly realm. But a third of them rebel according to Revelation chapter 12. Okay, so they're supposed to be vice regents for him in the heavenly realm, but a third of them rebel. All right? Now, when a third of them rebel, they become demons. So you have angels and you have demons. Now, I'm saying this because some believe that the demons are the disembodied spirits of human beings. I don't think that that's the case, and I'll I'll prove that, I think, biblically in just a moment. So angels are the two-thirds that remain faithful to God. The demons are the third that fell away. But of that third, some of them, according to Genesis 6, went after women. And it's those specifically that are locked away in prison. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is casting out demons. And if they're all put and locked away in prison, you might ask, well, then how is Jesus casting out a demon if he's locked away in prison? Because not all of them are locked away. So you have demons all rebel against God, but only some demons went after women and therefore were imprisoned. Are you with me? So you have angels, you have demons, but then you have two categories of demons, those who went after women and those who didn't. Those who did, they were the ones who were imprisoned. And as Bob has pointed out, and we pointed out earlier in our studies in Revelation, these are the ones that are going to be let out in Revelation chapter 9. Isn't that spooky? (laughs) Now, I believe that we're not going to be there for that, but the point is, yeah, the, the, the unregenerate world wants them so badly, God says, well, here you go. And it's not going to be a pretty picture. Okay, so that's the type of demonology. Now, let me prove my point because many today, in fact, I have to disagree with a a guy that, um, by the way, I think his worldview regarding demonology is largely correct. But Michael Heiser, Michael Heiser claims that demons are the disembodied spirits of the men and women that came about as a result of the physical union between the angels and the women in Genesis 6. The problem with that is I think those human beings went to Hades if they're unbelievers, just like any other unbeliever would. Okay, now let me show you the link between angels and demons to show you that they are indeed synonymous. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 12, 24 through 27. Now, I'm sorry to get into all this detail, but I want to nail this down. Let's get into our angelology and our demonology and really anchor this down so we understand what's going on in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 12, verses 24 through 27. Now remember, in Matthew 12, as you're turning there to verses 24 through 27, this is where Jesus has been doing great miracles, demonstrating he's the Messiah, but the religious leadership of Israel is ascribing his power to Satan, which ends up being blaspheming the the Holy Spirit. So notice what they say. It says, but when the Pharisees heard this, this is Matthew 12, 24, When they heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Okay, so stop there for just a moment. Notice Beelzebul, whoever he is, he's a ruler of the demons. Well, you're going to see that Beelzebul is synonymous with Satan himself. Now, that comes about later. Notice verse 25. It says, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, so now notice Jesus talking about Satan, not Beelzebul. Why? Because they're one and the same. 
He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Notice verse 27. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So notice Satan, who is Beelzebul. By the way, Beelzebul more than likely is a pejorative. One thing that you have to realize the Hebrews like to do is they like to do puns on words. Let me give you an example. There was a god that the Canaanites worshipped, the Amorites. It was named Melech. Melech in Hebrew means king. But the Israelites didn't consider... This is the one, by the way, that they would sacrifice their firstborn children to in order to try to garner favor from the deity. Well, this false king, or false god, I should say, demon, Melech, which means king... What the Hebrews did is they vault-pointed, instead of eh, they go, oh, Molech. So you and I have all read Molech in our Bible. The reason they vault-pointed that is because Bosheth means shameful. So Melech, what they're saying is this demon isn't any king, he's a shameful one. So it's a pejorative. The same thing with Beelzebul. See, this idea of Beelzebub, the idea that Baal is prince, what they do is they turn it on the on its head, and they say he's the prince of flies. Beelzebul. Okay, so Beelzebul is a pejorative for Satan himself. He's the lord of the flies. He's the lord of the dung heap. That's all he's lord of. So that's why it's being used as a pejorative for Satan. But Jesus clarifies what we're talking about. So Satan, therefore, is the ruler of the demons. Why is that important? Don't turn to it, because I'll show you later. Because in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says that hell was created for Satan and his angels. So if Satan has angels that he's prince over, and here we see in Matthew 12 that he's prince over the demons... I think it's very fair to say that demons are angels. Are you with me? That demons are not the disembodied spirits of human beings from the Nephilim, but there really are a class of angels who have rebelled against God. Is everyone with me? So again, oh, I'm sorry, we had a question back here or comment. Delani. Yeah, just going back to, you said in the book of Revelation, these demons that come out of the pit or why you, you were talking about apollyon then yes absolutely okay. yep destruction yeah. right so let me just give you a little history what happened in evangelicalism in the 70s um was that when hal Lindsay was popular 70s 80s i have his book to this day just kind of for a historical record it's called um late great planet earth yeah yeah, late great planet earth well hal Lindsay in his book he tries to describe these locust beings in Revelation 9 as being Apache helicopters. And so what he's trying to do is to say, well, phenomenologically, they kind of look like that. Maybe that's what they are. But I think he's misunderstanding that what's being depicted is that these demonic beings that were locked away in prison are actually going to be let out. Now, remember, that happens within the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. What is that known as? Well, it's known as the day of the Lord. That's the time of judgment. So these demons are not let out prior to this time of judgment and God's wrath that comes upon the earth. That's the whole idea. Remember Revelation 3.10, the great promise, because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is the 70th week of Daniel, that will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Yeah, so very good. So Revelation 9 is about these angelic beings, these demons, who were, went after women who were locked away in prison being let out because the unregenerate humanity wants contact, God says, well, here you go. 
Yep. Very good. All right. So is everybody clear then? So angelology, we have angels. A third of them fell, became demons. Of the demons, you have some that went after women in Genesis 6. They were locked away in prison. Okay. So this is the same prison then that Satan is going to be locked away in for a thousand years. But after the thousand years is completed, he's going to be let out to bring about this one last rebellion. Now, one other thing I want to point out, I'm sorry, there's a lot of details that I want to talk about in this text. One other thing I want you to think about with amillennialism. Again, amillennialists claim there's no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. If amillennialists are correct, what they will claim is that Satan being bound happens when Jesus died at the cross. Well, if that's true, if, if Satan's binding happened by Jesus at the cross... Well, then, why is he being released? Would, not, would that not indicate that the work of the cross is being undone? Well, of course it would. Well, we know the work of the cross will never be undone. So, obviously, the binding of Satan is not, as the amillennialists claim, the work of Christ on the cross, but it is a binding in a literal prison, just as we've read in Jude 6 through 7, in 2 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3, that happened to these demons that went after strange flesh. Okay, so that's another, I think, mark against uh, millennialism. Now, notice here back in the Revelation text in verse 8, this deception goes out to all the nations by Satan, and it talks about it going out to the four corners of the earth. Why four corners? It means the whole earth. In fact, in Isaiah 11, God promises that one day he will bring back all of his people from the four corners of the earth. The idea of four corners would be the four compass points, north, east, west, south. So it's the whole world. And notice he gathers them for this battle called Gog and Magog. Now, one thing I want to point out, let me just point out my pointer real quick. Notice he says it's to gather them together for the war. There's a definite article there. Now, that's not always significant, but sometimes it can denote that there's a specific war, not just a war, not just for battle, but the war. And I think that that points us to the fact that Gog and Magog is a specifically known battle or war that will occur. And so the question is, well, what is this war? What is Gog and Magog? What's this all a reference to? Well, remember back in history, in biblical history, this is what Ezekiel had written about in Ezekiel chapters 38 through 39. And so after Israel has been brought into their land and they're restored, there's a battle that's referred to called Gog and Magog. Now let's put it up on the screen and we'll read this because this is what John is alluding to. He's alluding back to the Old Testament. Of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, what is it, 92% of them contain either allusions or direct quotations from the Old Testament. It's just overwhelming. So we see that again here. This is what John was alluding to, the battle. Ezekiel 38, 2 through 4. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Melech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech and Tubal, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Okay, so there's this great battle that's going to occur. Now, the first thing I want you to note is notice, first of all, let me pull up my pointer again. 
in the text, Gog isn't a place, but it's a person because he comes from the land of Magog. Does everyone see that? So Gog is not a place. It's a person that comes from the land of Magog. Okay, second, notice he's referred to as a prince. In fact, he's talked about two times in the NASB version, the prince of Roche. So Gog is therefore a prince of some kind. Now, let me just allude to a translation issue, and I'll clarify more on the next slide. But here I'm using the NASB. And here the NASB is saying that whoever Gog is, he's the prince of Roche. How many in here have an ESV version or an NIV, NRSV, any of those? A lot of you do. Well, you'll notice in a lot of other versions, the ESV, NRSV, NIV, I think they're to be preferred because they will say the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Okay, so Rosh in the NRSV, the ESV, the NIV, even the King James, it renders Rosh not as a place, but as a descriptive adjective chief. So it's not just Prince of Rosh, it's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And again, it would be chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. That's to be preferred. Is everyone with me? So we have to know then that there's a chief prince, namely Gog. That's what we have to understand. Now, what you have to know about is Gog and Magog and all of these different areas that are alluded to, we have to know where they came from. Because one of the questions is, what nations are being referred to, what lands are being referred to, who in the world, and what in the world is Magog and uh, Meshach and Tubal? Well, the first reference to Magog is actually in Genesis chapter 10. Now remember, we have the table of nations here. These are all the descendants that come from, from Noah's family, from his three sons specifically, from Shem, from Ham, and from Japheth. So in Genesis 10.2, you see the sons that come from Japheth. It's Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Now notice three of them are alluded to in Ezekiel 38. Now, the reason this is important is because these nations that are alluded to in the table of nations here that are highlighted, Magog, Tubal, Meshech, end up being those who fill out the nations that bordered the Mediterranean, the northern Mediterranean, like in the Turkey region. Okay? Now, I'm saying that because many today believe that this is a reference to Moscow would be Meshech, Tubal be a reference to Tobolsk, the Russian city, Rosh, they believe, is a reference to Russia. So they believe this is a reference to Russia. Okay, but more than likely, this is a bunch of people that settled in the coastland area in the northern Mediterranean. Okay, and so that's contrasted then with the sons of Ham and the sons of Shem, who end up being the Semites and the Africans who settle elsewhere. All right, now let me have you turn your Bibles just three verses ahead to Genesis 10.5. I want you to see how these are indeed coastlands. We see evidence of it. Genesis 10.5, please turn your Bibles there. Now, Genesis 10.5, it says, From these, and again, it's alluding back to what we just read in Genesis 10.2, From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to this language, according to their families, into their nations. So again, these are coastland nations. In fact, notice Meshach in Genesis 10-2 again. You see it also in Ezekiel 38 on the screen. 
Meshek is actually listed as a trading partner with Tyre, which is a coastal nation in Ezekiel 27. Okay. Now, the reason I'm laboring this point is because traditional evangelical answers regarding the battle of Gog and Magog goes like this. Traditional evangelicalism, and what I mean by traditional evangelicalism is John Wolverd, Dwight Pentecost, many men who had a lot of sway, really all through the 80s and 90s even, and uh, they're from Dallas Theological Seminary. A lot of them would claim that Gog and Magog has to do with Asia, just kind of the general place of Asia. Rosh would be Russia. Meshek would be Moscow. Tubal would be Tobolsk. So notice the reference to Russia. You have Russia, Moscow, and Tobolsk. So this is a Russian invasion. Gog is Asia's prince. That's the general area, the continent. Asia would be Magog. That's how they would understand it. Okay. Now, recently, this has, I think, been corrected, and correctly so, by scholarship today. Gog and Magog is the area of the, the land of the northern Mediterranean. Gog would obviously be the prince or this leader of this confederation. Rosh is not a name place, but instead an adjective. Again, it refers to chief. Now, again, who has the ESV in here? Would somebody mind reading their ESV version? Does anybody have an ESV? No one? Um, how about a... Scott, do you have an ESV? Or, um, how, or even an NRSV or a NIV? Uh, Scott has it, I think. Could you read Ezekiel 38.2? Now, if you have an NASB, read along and follow along. But hear, hear what it says in the ESV version. This is Ezekiel 38.2. Oh, I thought we were in Genesis 10.5. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, Bob's got it. Ezekiel 38.2. This is Holman Christian Standard okay, Bible. Good. Perfect. Son of man, turn your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Okay, so does everyone see that their Rosh is not a reference to a country like Russia, but it's an adjective, chief. It's chief prince. Does everyone see that? We know that is to be preferred because in 2 Kings 25, 18, there's a chief priest that's referred to, and the term Rosh is being translated chief. So Rosh is not Russia, it's chief. All right, now, notice Meshech then would be modern-day Turkey, Iran, Iraq, along the northern Mediterranean. Tubal would be in the same area. Okay? In fact, let me read to you. I'll read to you this Edwin Yamauchi. Listen to what he says. He's a historian that holds to the lower view, the scholarship view. I don't mean lower in the sense of less biblical. I mean on the screen, the, the scholarship today. Edwin Yamauchi, he's a Christian historian. He says, quote, since the late 19th century, Assyrian texts have been available which locate Meshech and Tubal in central and eastern Antolio, respectively. These would be located in what is today modern Turkey. For Ezekiel, Meshech and Tubal were not Russian cities, but ancient ethnic groups that carried on trade with Tyre. And then he lists Ezekiel 27.13 as an example of that. Okay? Now, we've just dealt then with Meshech and Tubal, Again, we've dealt with Rosh. Rosh does not mean Russia, but instead it means a chief prince. Okay, does that make sense? So let me turn then. Oops, before I do that, there's another issue I want to deal with. 
and that's this reference to the remotest parts of the north. A lot of times the reason why people believe this attack from Gog and Magog is a reference to a Russian attack is because in Ezekiel 38.6 it talks about this invasion coming from the upper remotest parts of the north. The problem with trying to claim that that's necessarily a reference to Russia is the attack isn't referring to the location of the nation so much as it's referring to the location of the attack. And one thing we have to realize is even when Babylon invaded Judah and Jerusalem, where did they come from? Well, they didn't come from the east. That's where Babylon is. They came from the north. Why? Because the topography and geography of Israel is such that if you're going to invade, you're going to have to come from the north. So the enemies of God always came from the north. The north is very frightening to them. Okay, So that's the why I think it's referred to as the remotest parts of the north. It's simply saying that just as the nations always came from the north, this final battle is going to happen the same way. By the way, if you're in Israel, and I know many of you have taken a trip there, on a very clear day, you can see Mount Hermon to the north. Now, Mount Hermon is very significant. Why? Because that's where these Nephilim supposedly came down. All right? And, and there's a blue hue to it oftentimes because it's usually snow-capped, at least in the colder months. Now, what's very ominous about that is that's to the north if you're living in Jerusalem. Well, this is often referred to as Mount Zaphon, not Zaphon, like you're talking on Zaphon, <laughs> but Zaphon is a reference to this Mount Hermon. So, for example, in Isaiah 6, or not Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 68, God has chosen his abode in Zion, not in Zaphon not in Mount Hermon. So there's a battle between the demons and God. God has chosen his residing place in Jerusalem. So isn't it interesting, where do the enemies of God come from? They come from this ominous area that has this blue hue to it that is known as the recesses of the north. The places where the demons are, where the pagans are, where the Nephilim came down, where Baal worship is, is headquartered. The very place where at Caesarea Philippi, they give the first confession Remember, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The confession of Christ happens at the foot of Mount Hermon, the recesses of the north. And I think it's God's way of saying, in your face, Satan, I'm going to build my church on this confession, and the gates of Hades won't be able to prevail against it. So that's the significance of the recesses of the north. And so when the enemies come from the north, all of this baggage theologically is with it. Are you with me? Okay, so let me pull up a, a map. And I, I know my map isn't probably very good, but again, traditionally, the idea is that it, the attack here in Gog and Magog would come from Russia. Okay? But when you look at the data, it suggests that instead it's the Mediterranean northern coastal area. So it's basically everything that surrounds Israel to the north, Iraq, etc., Iran, by the way. In fact, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 38, 5 through 6. I want to show you the nations that are going to be with these northern Mediterranean coastal nations in this attack in Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38, 5 through 6. Notice it says, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops. Beth to Gorma from the remote parts of the north. With all its troops, many peoples with you. So notice the reference to Persia. That's modern day Iran. Oops, where's my, I lost my cursor. There it is. I lost control of it. 
So there we go. We have Persia. We're going to have Iraq. By the way, we have uh, Cush, which is Ethiopia. That'd be down here. We have Put, which would be the area of Libya and Egypt. So basically all the nations that are surrounding Israel are going to be involved in this attack. That's what the Battle of Gog and Magog is all about. Now, the big question is, well, when does this battle occur? And there have been three primary answers. Now, first of all, when we ask the question, when does this battle occur, notice Ezekiel 38.8 says it happens in the latter years. Why is that significant? Because when you see a reference to the latter years, it's really referring to the last days. Now, help me out, congregation, when did the last days begin? With the first advent of Christ. Absolutely. Do you remember in... Um, oops, I heard a noise. Oh, okay. I just thought maybe it was... It's not like a computer. It's not my computer. It's not going to blow up anyway, so it should be good. The last days, according to Hebrews 1, 1 verses 1 through 2, begins at the first advent of Christ. Remember, it says in many portions and in many ways, God has spoken to us through the prophets or the fathers, but in these last days... He has spoken to us through what? The Son, right? So the last days have begun with the first advent of Jesus Christ. So the point in saying that is Ezekiel 38.8 shows that this battle will occur in the last days after Jesus' first advent. So what that does then in the timeline, it begins at least at his first advent. Okay, so with that in mind, we have three options. Does this battle occur during the church age? That would be also referred to as the time of the Gentiles. It could, ref- it could happen there. If it does occur there, re- remember this. If that battle must occur during the church age, the days that we're living in now, then there's a precursor prior to the coming of Jesus. And if there's a precursor, something that must occur prior to the coming of Jesus, well, then Jesus' coming isn't imminent. Okay, we've just lost imminence. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not true, okay, because maybe imminence isn't taught. I think it is. And I don't think that's where the battle occurs. All right? Now, many scholars like John Wolver, Dwight Pentecost, men of renown in biblical prophecy from, from Dallas Theological Seminary, they will claim that it happens in the 70th week. Does everyone see that? Does everyone know what the 70th week is? That's the, what we call the seven-year tribulation period. The last 70th week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Okay? Now, the third option would be it would happen after the Millennial Kingdom. This is the thousand-year reign of Christ. And many believe that it happens here. And that's what I do. I believe that it happens here. Why? Because Revelation 20, the description of this battle of Gog and Magog, I think is synonymous. Okay? That's what I think it's referring to. So, it's after the millennium. So, it's after the millennium. So, all these nations will be in peace, so to speak, but there'll be many of them seething in anger against the Messiah who is ruling and reigning. And what happens is Satan is let out and he's going to deceive them into one last battle. Yeah, Scott's got something. Whenever I try to to take a note, then somebody raises their hand. (laughs) Sorry. Just a point of clarification. Um, the uh, I got to remember it. Um, the when when Jesus returns, he's going to rescue Israel. Yes. And so that's that's at the end of the seventieth week, right? Exactly. So what I believe is the beginning of the seventieth week, you have the rapture. 
So the church goes to be home with the Lord. And then God pours out his wrath in that 70th week. And at the end of the 70th week, he returns with the church and he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. And so when, during that period of a thousand years, he's not going to tolerate sin. Nations will have to go up. Remember in Zechariah 14, the nations who don't bring him honor and glory, he will not allow rain to fall upon their land. And so what happens is the unregenerate, those who don't love God and Christ reigning from Jerusalem, because sin is intolerated, they're going to be seethingly angry at him. And so when Satan is let out after the thousand years, you have one final rebellion. Yep. In which, yeah, Luann. I just had a real quick question on the during or right after the people who hold that view. What is their support? Do you have an, you know, what? Yeah, in fact, I'll get into that in the next slide. I'll show you um, the very next slide. Good question. In fact, let's do that. Let's do that right now. After the millennial came as the third view. Let's look at the 70th week view. Again, this has been the most popular view among evangelicals in the 20th century. Again, because of the popularity of John Wolverd and so many at Dallas Theological Seminary. Many scholars claim that the Battle of Gog and Magog taught in Ezekiel 30 through 39 is different than the Battle of Gog and Magog alluded to in Revelation chapter 20. They claim this battle occurs during the 70th week. Now, the problems with that, to me, are insurmountable. And I'll tell you the main problem with it. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 38.8. Please turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 38.8. The problem with believing, as you're turning there, Ezekiel 38.8, that somehow this battle of Gog and Magog happens within the 70th week of Daniel, within that last seven-year tribulation period, is that according to Ezekiel 38.8, Israel is living securely when this battle occurs. Now, can anyone claim when they're going through their greatest distress they've ever gone through in their history, which is during the 70th week of Daniel... Could anyone claim that they're really dwelling securely? I think not. But when could they be dwelling securely? Well, in the millennial kingdom. Okay, so listen to what it says, Ezekiel 38.8. Here's the battle. It says, after many days you will be summoned. The summoning goes out to the nations that we just looked at in that map that are going to come against Israel, comprised of unregenerate unbelievers. After many days you'll be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they were living securely, all of them. Now notice the term securely there in Hebrew, batak. The term batak, you use it five times, you, can, you own it. Batak, batak. Batak is used, for example, in Leviticus 25, where God promises that if Israel would be faithful to their covenant promises that he had bound them to, if they were faithful to his covenant, they would live batak, they would live securely. Now what happens? Well, they sin, and they rebel against God, so they never live securely. But one of the great promises is that God would bring them back into their nation, and they would be able to live securely. In fact, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 28, verses 25 through 26. I want you to see this promise... That one day indeed, they would live in security. Now, as you turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 28, verses 25 through 26, Ezekiel 28 is interesting because this prophecy that gives a promise to Israel is in the midst. It's just wedged right in the middle of all of these pronouncements of judgment upon Tyre, upon Sidon, upon all of the enemies of Israel. 
But all of a sudden you come to Ezekiel 28, 25 through 6. In the midst of all this judgment, listen to the promise to Israel. It says, Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely. There's Batak. And they will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely, Batak, when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them around about them, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. So when do they live securely? I think more than likely it's in that millennial kingdom. Let me pull up my pointer again. They're living securely here. Okay, now why can't they be living in security here? Well, this is known as Jacob's great distress. In fact, in the last three and a half years, Jesus said, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. In fact, that's what Jesus warned about in the mid part of the tribulation period. Remember, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. Eric, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, Eric, you just actually answered the question that I had, but I wanted to yeah. bring this up anyway. Um, my recollection of the people who say that the that this battle will be, you know, during the 70th week was, it's the treaty, you know, the, the, the Jewish people, Israel will apparently will sign a treaty with the Antichrist, and then they will think that they have security. And so I've heard people say, well, this is why the Ezekiel 38 uh, Gog-Magog war will be then, because they will be living yeah. securely via the treaty. What your, what your point is, is that, is that Ezekiel 38... Eight is properly interpreted that they will be living truly secure. Exactly. In God's promise. Exactly I think that's right. Correct. Okay. Um, just the other week, this past week, there was missiles launched from Gaza Strip into Sarot, and they're always under attack. And of course, the mainstream media and the left always supports the Palestinians. By the way, the reason why the left supports the Palestinians is remember they're Marxists. Marxists always break everything into the haves versus the have nots. Everything is seen through that prism. It's their religion. This is a false religion we're dealing with. So you and I think morally. We think about, well, who started it? They don't care about that. They see the Palestinians as the have-nots. The Israelis are the haves. So they automatically support the have-nots. That's what they do. So you can, be, you can launch as many rockets as you want against people living in peace in Israel, and the left will never care. That's the way it is. But it just shows you that even now during the church age, we're not in the 70th week, but we're living here. They're not living securely. They will not have security until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's their Messiah. And then when he reigns with them, they will live securely forevermore. In fact, when this battle comes, we're going to see that in the text. What, what does Jesus do? He calls fire down from heaven. It's the most lopsided battle of all time. It's not going to be a big battle where people are going to be shooting at each other. Jesus calls down fire and wipes out their enemies. So they really are going to live securely, uh, even though this battle occurs. Yeah, very good. So over and over again, you see this promise that when the battle happens, whoops, I got to get rid of my pointer there. Um, let me just read to you Ezekiel 38. You don't have to turn to this. Ezekiel 38, 11. You will say, I will go up against, this is the unregenerate coming against a battle against Jerusalem. I will come up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, the live securely, attack, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. Ezekiel 38, 14, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you, talking about the unregenerate, not know it? 
So again, securely, 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 they're living securely. I think that that can only happen in the millennial kingdom. Now, let me give you evidence for the view that I hold to. After the millennial kingdom, again, we saw evidence in Revelation chapter 20 that Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. After the thousand years, we saw that he's going to be released and he's going to gather this battle of Gog and Magog. So, first of all, similarities between Revelation chapter 20 and Ezekiel 38 through 39. One is we have a large number of troops in both. Okay, a large number of troops. Now, that's not a lot to go on, but there's a large number that's being referred to in Ezekiel. And they cover like the sand of the seashore, the land in Revelation 20, verse 8. Both battles occur in Israel. Ezekiel 38, 18, Revelation 20, verse 9. Israel would be living securely. To me, that's a huge one. You can't say that in the 70th week of Daniel. You can't say that now. They're not living securely, but they will when Messiah is with them. Number four, both battles end with God calling down fire. To me, that's a huge one to look at. Let me show you this. Ezekiel 39, verses 5 through 6, this is the battle of Gog and Magog. How does it end? Do the Israelis, do the Israelis bring out the F-16s, the F-15s, do they break out their Merkava tanks, and they just do battle, and they end up squeaking out a victory again? No. God is going to call fire down. Ezekiel 39, 5 through 6, you will fall on the open field. This is what happens to the enemies of Israel. For it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am Yahweh. Now, notice what we saw today here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. It says, And they came, this is the enemies again surrounding Jerusalem and Israel. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So it's, again, a very lopsided battle. One of the things you can take away from this is that as soon as Jesus comes back for us and raptures us, we're always secure. Do you realize that we're going to be part of this kingdom that's going to be attacked by all these people? And what do we do? We sit there and yawn, and Jesus takes care of it. And that's a wonderful thing to realize that as soon as Jesus comes, physically you and I are always secure. We'll be in our resurrected state. The enemies of God cannot challenge him. Why? Because he has all power. Now, I also want you to notice here in verse 9, notice they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Now, the beloved city is what city? It's Jerusalem. Now, remember, we don't come to the new Jerusalem until the next chapter. This shows you the significance and the love of Jerusalem that God has and the promise that he would establish them even in the earthly sphere, even before the new Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. Again, the beloved city, Jerusalem, will one day live in security. And when Messiah is in their presence, no matter who comes against them, they will never falter again. Do you remember back in Isaiah's day when the nations would gather against Jerusalem? Do you remember the bad kings of Judah, like Ahaz? Remember, they'd always choose to trust in a nation. They'd always choose in trusting some coalition, whether it was trusting in Babylon, whether it was trusting in Assyria, whoever they were trusting in, sometimes they trusted in Egypt. It always fell through. But in the millennial kingdom, remember, they've come to faith in the Messiah. Do you remember that? Zechariah 12, they will call upon the name of the Lord, right? They're going to come to faith in the Messiah, and now they're going to call upon him. And what does he do? He rescues them. They really do dwell securely 
the moment they trust upon him forevermore. That's the great promise that we see in the scriptures. Okay, well, with that, um, I guess we're out of time. Does anybody have any comments or questions real quick? Bob. One practical one as far as I was called upon to debate in millennials. Yeah, yeah. A lot of harm has been done by evangelicals trying to push this into... <coughs> <coughs> the church age. Yes. These books about helicopters or Russia. Yeah. Or, I remember in the 80s, there were, when the EU was being formed. Yeah. At some point, there were, they got to 10. Right. We'll say this is it. Right. And I wouldn't defend that in a debate. Right, right. Because I don't believe it. Yeah. So if we get things wrong, we're just pushing people into amillennialism. Exactly. We don't believe any of this happens uh, during the church age. Amen. That's right. And that it goes on for an indefinite period of time. Yeah. The yeah. church age. The church that age, is. exactly. Yeah. That's one period that we don't have a definite number for. Right. Exactly. So we need to avoid that. Yes. And avoid speculating. And I appreciate that you give, give biblical evidence for your view. Yeah, amen. And it is supernatural. Yeah. And I would remind us that when Israel came out of Egypt, it wasn't because of any natural reasons. Exactly. It was God intervening to bring them out. Amen. Well said, Bob. Very fitting way to... Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Just one really quick yeah, one. But, um, you know, back when you were doing the Table of Nations prior, yeah. Noah actually blessed Japheth and said, you will dwell securely in the house of Shem. Yes. So how do you reconcile those two? Yeah, you know, let's come back to that. There's a lot to that because the, the, what's interesting is the cursing. Remember, Ham is the one who does the sin against Noah. What's interesting is his descendants, Canaan, that end up being cursed. I think that, that it's literal that they're cursed, but also it's a theological reason why Moses is writing that is to show why is it that the Canaanites are to be driven out of the land. Well, because, remember, they're the ones who are engulfed with the Nephilim, and they're doing the same sin that Ham did. It's sexual perversion, um, going against authority, etc. And so one of the theological reasons why that's being written is Canaan is going to be cursed but those who are with Shem, the Semites, which end up being the Israelites, they're going to be blessed. That's a basic 30,000-foot view of it. Does that make sense, Luann? So Moses there is giving, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing Genesis is showing the theological reasons why Canaan was cursed and why they should be driven out of the land just as God had commanded. But those who are Japheth, those who are with Shem, they're going to be blessed. Why? Because they're with, ultimately, God's people. Yeah. So that's a quick 30,000-foot view. But we'll come back to that. Now, we'll finish this next week. We'll finish because we have to get into verse 10. I'll show you evidence in history that God did call down fire before. And so him calling down fire is something theologically significant. And we'll wrap it up, and then we'll get into the next section. So let's end with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have clearly spoken in your word that we can know these things and know when they happen, um, when you reveal when they happen, Lord. And we thank you for giving us clarity of thought I pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd be always those who are consumed with trusting in you rather than political alliances, that we would know ultimately our salvation rests in the finished work of Messiah, what he has done and what he will do in him alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.